Malachi chapter 3. Uh, so the last verse of chapter 2 and the first verse of chapter 3, we looked at those last week, and they really point to what Jason just taught the kids. John the Baptist was fulfilling the prophecy of the one who would come to prepare the way for the Messiah. And Jesus would come to fulfill the prophecy of the Lord coming into his temple. Okay, And so with that as kind of the backdrop here, let's read Malachi chapter 3, verses 2 through 5. And then we'll have a word of prayer. Read with me, Malachi chapter 3, verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray. Lord, we see John as the messenger. We see Jesus as the messenger Messiah, Lord, who would come, fulfill all that was necessary in holiness, in righteousness, Lord, and then inexplicably, by your design and for your glory, create a way that wretches like us could also be saved and might have a home in eternal heaven with you. And Lord, these verses point out your majesty that we've sung about this morning, how great you are, who can stand in your presence. Lord, I pray that you would humble us today, break down our our pride that would cause us to look at our own selves in a mirror and say, you know what, I'm not that bad. Lord, not not to make us have terrible self-esteem, Lord, but to make the cross that much more beautiful in our sight, Lord, so that we might fear you as we ought. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So look at, look at verse two. We've moved from prophecy, from people asking for justice. And verse two poses the question, who can endure in that day, in the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? Will the priests be able to stand before the presence of God? Malachi has made it pretty clear. The priests don't have a leg to stand on. Would the people be able to stand against the judgment of God when, when he returns. Again, Malachi's made it very clear. No, they won't be able to. And so this poses the question for us. Will you be able to stand in the presence of Christ in the second coming? We'll consider that thought as we go today. In verse two, it mentions the day of his coming. And I think that, that phrase, day of his coming, is connected to the same day of the Lord that was mentioned in verse 1. 
Okay, though the Messiah coming into the temple was literally fulfilled at his presentation as an infant in Luke chapter 2, verse 22, his first coming wasn't to refine and to judge. His first coming was to redeem, wasn't it? His first coming was to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10, verse 45 tells us. So uh, Martin Luther, I read this week, puts this in really good perspective. He said, there are only two important days on my calendar, this day and that day. You understand what that means? This day that we're in and that day when Christ returns. Those are the two most important days on his calendar, he said. And really, those are significant for us as well. Who can endure? Who can stand? That's the question. It really, you can tell by the way this is written. This is a rhetorical question. He's not actually asking for a response here. And to be honest, Malachi is not the first prophet to ask this question. These, these verses are in your notes. I'll go through them quickly. Joel asked this question. Chapter 2, verse 11. For the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Jeremiah 10, verse 10, but the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At his wrath, the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure his indignation or his anger. Nahum 1, verse 6, same question. Who can stand at his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. Who can stand? Who can endure? This is a question regularly posed to the people of God to point them to the obvious fact, the obvious answer to this question. No one. And yet, if you look at Nahum chapter one, verse seven, He kind of answers this question, if you will. He's just asked who can stand, who can endure. Same questions that Malachi asks. And here's his answer in Nahum chapter 1, verse 7. The Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. So there's, there's a question posed. It's rhetorical, but Nahum almost answers it here. Who can stand? Who can endure? Those who take refuge in him. That's it. The nation of Israel, you'll remember, the end of chapter 2, was asking this really arrogant question. They're saying, where is the God of justice? Implying they don't see him. They don't know him. They're looking for him. They say, where is the God of justice? And now Malachi is essentially answering that question. He's saying, are you sure that's what you want? Are you really confident that you want the God of justice? Can you endure the day that you see him? Can you stand before him? The reality is, standing before the searching scrutiny of this righteous judge, no one will be able to maintain a successful defense of their actions, of their behavior, of their thoughts. Psalm 130, verse 3. Kids in Awana Your ears maybe perk up when I mention that verse. This is a verse you guys learn. Here it is. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? You understand what the psalmist is saying there? If the Lord kept track of every sin in your life, you would never be able to stand before him 
and make a defense for yourself. And the psalmist was very clear in that. And I think if we're honest with ourselves, we would come to the same conclusion. You can't justify your actions before a righteous judge. And like Israel, oftentimes we say we want justice to be served. Where's the God of justice? This isn't fair, God. Why don't you come and fix this problem? And Malachi asks, and I might ask, are you sure that's what you really want? See, we demand that justice be served until we're the ones who are accused, right? We want the God of justice just as long as he overlooks my iniquity. Come bring fire down, right? The sons of thunder were guilty of this same idea. Come destroy these people, but overlook my problems. Overlook my mistakes. But God has a plan to right every wrong and refine those who really belong to him. And that plan centers around the Messiah who will come again. Now, interestingly enough, the next verse, Psalm chapter 130, verse 4, says this, but with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Right? So he says, if the Lord should mark iniquities, no one could stand, but... With him, with the Lord, there is forgiveness. So the same one who would judge is also the one who forgives. But he doesn't do it just so that you can go and live your best life now. He does it, why? What's the purpose? So that he may be feared. Now this is kind of like a theme that we're seeing, isn't it? In Malachi especially. That the root problem of Israel, and oftentimes the root problem of our own hearts, is that we don't really fear the Lord as we should. We lack the proper fear of God. But a proper fear of the Lord, what does that reveal? Reveals forgiveness in the Lord. Now, flip back to Malachi, chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. These explain kind of why, why you can't stand, why no one can endure that day on your own. Why no one can make justification for their sins. He says this, For he is like a, a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He'll sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he'll purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Now we've talked about, just in, in our study in Peter, we've talked about what this refining process is, what it, what it looks like. Refiners would heat up metal, especially here we're talking about gold and silver, so precious metal. And when you heat that up to the right temperature, the impurities in the metal rise to the surface. And then what that's called dross. And then when that would rise to the surface, they would they would scrape that away, leaving as much gold or silver as, as they can. They would scrape that away and then they would repeat that process multiple times. So we, we kind of know what that looks like. We'll come back to it in just a moment. But think about the Fuller's soap here for a moment. This is probably kind of a new concept. You probably have not heard. Uh, this term is only used a few times in Scripture. So I want to just consider the meaning of Fuller's soap for a moment. A Fuller in Bible times was basically somebody who did the laundry. Okay, that is, that is most simple terms. They would wash clothes. Oftentimes they would use their feet to kind of agitate the clothes, right? We put ours in the washing machine and it has an agitator and it does that. They would 
they would wash it, put it in a basin or something, and they would use their feet to agitate and get the, the dirt off. And specifically, fullers were known for whitening garments. So if you had something that had stains or was old and dingy, you would take it to the fuller, and they would whiten and clean that garment for you. Interesting, at the transfiguration of Jesus, as recorded in Mark, especially in the King James Version, it says that the, the clothes that Jesus was wearing at the transfiguration were so white that no fuller could whiten them anymore. Couldn't be whitened. They were whiter than anything any of the writers of Scripture had any context for. No fuller could get these clothes whiter. So how do you do that? How do you, how do you whiten clothes without, like, bleach that we have now or some type of, you know, fancy laundry detergent? Uh, the word for soap here in the, in the text has the meaning of things like alkali or you might have heard the term borax, that kind of thing. Borax is an alkaline substance that occurs naturally in deposits produced by the repeated evaporation of bodies of water where plants with a high alkali content grow. So if you think about the area in which they were, we're talking Mediterranean Sea, we're talking the Dead Sea, so we're, we're finding a lot of plants that would fit that description. So the fullers would, when the tide goes out or when the water levels drop, they would go and they would get some of this more concentrated materials and they would use that to dye the fabrics. Consider the fuller's soap and its purpose and its process and now think about the refiner and the metal. Do you see the connection? Okay, if you don't, let me help. Okay, according to these metaphors, so the fuller, the refiner, the goal wasn't to destroy the metal. The goal wasn't to destroy the fabric. What was it? To purify it, to refine it, to get the bad stuff out. The fuller would heat up the metal to remove the, I'm sorry, the refiner would do that with the metal to remove the impurities. The fuller would clean and whiten the garments by stomping the dirt out, if you will. Uh, one commentator I read this week said, suffering fulfills a divine plan to remove impurities of character. You see that in how the Lord has dealt with you in your life? That those difficult times, we're not denying that they're difficult, but can we see the purpose in it? Sometimes it takes years to see the purpose in our hard times. But suffering fulfills a divine plan to remove impurities of character. And at the day of his coming, this is what will take place. Now Malachi picks back up to the refiner analogy in verse 3. Look at that with me. He says that he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. Purify the sons of Levi. Refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Now, I've never personally gone through the process of purifying metal. Have any of you ever had the chance to do this? I've never personally done this, but I heard a story about a small ladies Bible study group who were going through Malachi and they found out about this idea of a refiner and they were, one lady was struck in particular about how it says that the refiner sits as he refines the metal. And she thought that doesn't seem right. 
So she went and found someone who works with metal and without telling him why she was there, she just said, could you explain the process to me? And so she says, do you ever sit while you refine? And he said, said, oh yeah. He said, "I, I have to sit with my eyes steadily fixed on the furnace since if the silver remains too long, it's sure to be injured or damaged. So she replies, well, how do you know? How do you know when it's sufficiently refined? How do you know when it's the, the quality that you want it? Here's what he answered. He said, whenever I see my own image reflected in it, I know that the process is complete. Despite the furnace, despite the refining process, I hope that we don't miss the comfort that we find in these verses, in this analogy in particular. Notice too, God doesn't hire this process out. Now, it's true that at times he used neighboring nations to judge his people. But what Malachi is getting at here is that God doesn't just farm this out. He doesn't hire out this process. He himself sits above the fire, waiting, watching, overseeing the process. The idea of him sitting here doesn't mean he's indifferent to it. It means he is actively attentive to the refining process. This, I hope, brings us comfort. Because he is sitting over that fire, laboring, waiting, scraping away the impurity of character, if you will, over and over, with the purpose of what? When does he know that it's complete? When his own face shines back at him. Guys, this is the process of sanctification. And sometimes it feels like you're getting stomped out with the laundry. And sometimes it feels like you are held over the furnace. Don't forget, God sits over the whole process. 1900s pastor F.B. Meyer says this, If you are just now in the fire, dear soul, be of good cheer. It shows at least that you are silver or gold and capable of performing more acceptable service in God's holy temple. If you sit over the fire, if that's how you feel today, please be comforted and remember, you must be something precious to the Lord to be engaged in that process. Now, So often we view hardship and difficulty, suffering as negative, but I think maybe Malachi is teaching us that our thinking needs to shift from ourselves and how it affects us to the Lord and what he's doing in that process. God is cleansing. God is purifying. He is sanctifying us for his own glory. And for Israel, Malachi says, look what he says, where does it begin? It begins with the sons of Levi. It says he will purify them and they will then bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Notice in this verse, that the refining comes before the proper offerings. Now, God, through Malachi, has been saying this sort of thing all along. He said, I do not accept your offerings because they cost you nothing. In fact, some of them were stealing offerings, giving the worst, the second best. Um, God said, I'd rather you shut the doors of the temple than to bring me stuff that costs you nothing, that you give from a wicked heart. And now, 
we're hearing that God's going to come and do the refining so that right offerings can be made. But notice, I'll point it out again, purification and cleansing always precede right worship, right offerings. Now, what what do I mean? What does this have to do with us? It means this. If your heart is far from God, your offerings are not given in the right way, and in essence, they're meaningless. This is what God says. Prophets cries down through the years, warned the people of this thing over and over. Malachi's no different. We've talked about it already. But once character has been transformed and purified, then the offerings will be given in the right spirit, the right motivation. And when they're not giving leftover worship or secondhand sacrifices, verse 4 says that they will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and in, as in former years. So the Lord begins the purification process with the spiritual leaders, with the priests. I think that says something to us. It, it says that when it starts there, the influence then begins to affect the whole of the nation of Israel. Only then will the rest of the population, who no doubt also undergo the purification process, will be able to offer what is pleasing to the Lord, he says. Now, I think we would be right to think of Malachi's writings so far kind of in a courtroom setting. Okay, there's a call and a response. There's questions. Some of them are rhetorical. There's accusations being made. The Israelites, in in some sense, have been putting God on the stand, (laughs) you know, asking things of him. Where is, where's this? Why is this happening? Where are you? They want justice from God, but only if it doesn't actually require anything from them. But God's also been speaking, hasn't he? To the priests, to the people, and he's reminded them of the covenants that have been made. How they've neglected the very things that actually make them special. Look at verse 5. Here, God calls an expert witness to take the stand. Who is it? Himself. He calls himself to the stand, if you will. And what is a refining process for some will for others bring judgment. Because God not only comes as a, as a star witness, but what other role does he fill in the courtroom? He's the judge. He's not only witnessing against them, he's the judge over them. They say, where is the God of justice? And now God answers them directly, it's me. I'm the judge, he's saying. Now the word swift here has the idea of being prompt. Okay, not always just a speed thing. But it means to be prompt. It means not too early, not too late. God's judgments are always right on time. And as a witness, God accuses the people of Israel in several major areas. Okay, and you'll notice there's there's kind of four major ones here. We're not going to spend a, a lot of time on them individually. But notice something with me. You can read through them. The four major prohibited acts that they've been guilty of, every one of them stems from the same root that Malachi lists at the end. Not fearing the Lord properly. Look at the end of verse 5. 
against those who thrust aside the sojourner. Here it is. And do not fear me, says the Lord. Every one of the things before that stem from the root of not fearing God properly. So he lists sorcery. This refers to just generally when people look to other things, whether it's foreign gods or whether it's the use of magic or something like that. They look to other things for strength and for power. Instead of finding that in their creator, their one father, they look for strength and security somewhere else. So what does that do? Well, it exposes their lack of trust in God and a lack of faith towards him. They're saying they can get a better result from using some other man-made solution. Like sorcery, there's also listed adultery, lying, bearing false witness, oppressing the vulnerable members of society, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner, those who are earning wages, the worker. These were all expressly forbidden by God. And we, I've got those a lot of the references list, listed in the notes. You can look those up. He specifically said, do not do that. And so by mistreating the vulnerable in society, the people of Israel proved that they had forgotten their history. Because what was their history? We read this verse, uh, uh, I think, two weeks ago. And God basically says, you weren't the biggest nation. You weren't the, weren't the most powerful. There was nothing special about you. But I chose you, Israel. Jacob, I chose you. Israel had once been a small, kind of helpless nation to some degree, and so they were specifically commanded to care for others who were in that same boat. But now, what was happening? They were taking advantage of one another. We saw that a couple weeks ago when the men of Israel were divorcing their wives and marrying outside of the tribe. They were guilty of not showing the grace that they had been received, have received to give to others. They were failing to show others the kind of grace that the Lord had shown them. And so turn that question in for just a moment. Are you guilty of doing the same thing? Are we guilty of forgetting what God has done for us when we deal with other people? The truth is, the person who claims the name of Christ, but intentionally mistreats or rides roughshod over other people, reveals that they actually don't fear the Lord as they ought to. Fear of the Lord preserves us for the day of judgment. See, the proper fear of the Lord teaches us to live in the light of God's grace and mercy, because those things are gifts that we have received through Christ. So if we forget this kind of fear, we risk forgetting how radical and incredible the good news of the gospel is. And inevitably, we will slide into complacency, which is what happened in Israel. If Christ has purchased believers with his blood, and he has, according to Hebrews 13 verse 20, we are also partakers of his holiness. So we're not supposed to simply hear the word, brothers and sisters in Christ, but also not just be hearers, but what? Doers also. We're saved by grace through faith for action. So today, we get to examine the state of our own spiritual lives. 
for just a moment. Consider these questions. Do we demand justice from God as long as it doesn't apply to us? Do we overlook and mistreat the vulnerable around us, thereby forgetting what God has done for us in Christ? Do you feel as though maybe you're being put through the fire, but instead of humbling us, it just makes you, ang- makes you angry and arrogant? Makes you cry out with raised fists like the Israelites, where's the God of justice? When in reality, he's standing right beside you. Charles Spurgeon once said, If any of you, my hearers, are seeking the Lord at this time, I want you to understand what it means. You are seeking a fire which will test you and consume much which has been dear to you. We're not to expect Christ to come and save us in our sins. He will come and save us from our sins. Therefore, if you are enabled by faith to take Christ as Savior, remember that you take him as the purger and the purifier. For it is from sin that he saves us. Guys, Christ has come to save, to redeem. But he's also come to set us free from the sin that so easily entangles us. And as he forgives, as I said earlier, it's not like your sins are forgiven so that you can just go and live however you want. When forgiveness comes, so does the call to go and sin no more. What is the difficult refining of the Christian is at the same time the terminal judgment of those who are without Christ as Savior. And so this is, I hope today, a comfort for the believer, a call to repentance and faith, but a comfort to you remembering that God sits over the fire that's refining you. But for those without Christ, judgment comes with fire. And it will not go well for you on that day. But don't wait until that day to make a decision of what you'll do with Jesus. Today is the day of salvation. Call to him and you will be saved. I want to close with a quote from a commentary I read this week. It's in your notes. It says this. The good news of Malachi, chapter 2, verses 17 through chapter 3, verse 5 is that there was a messenger of the covenant who would come. He upheld the covenant between God and Israel in his life, and he sealed the covenant in his blood on the cross. Every time Christians take the Lord's Supper, they proclaim that the messenger has come, and he will come again. We look back at his faithfulness, resting in the promise of his grace. In the courtroom of heaven, Jesus' blood will be our plea. And by his power, looking forward to his return, we live with a reverential fear of the Lord, doing good works that will be tested and approved, fully pleasing to God, just like our King Jesus. We look back at his faithfulness, and we look forward to his return. And that kind of comes together beautifully as we consider the Lord's Supper together this morning. Lord, We share in this meal together, not to fill our stomachs, Lord, but to remember. And so as we reflect on the things that Malachi has said through your spirit to us, Lord, I pray that our hearts would be humbled, that our lives would, if not before, would certainly after today prove 
that Jesus has made a difference in our lives, that we have truly been justified and are actively being sanctified. Lord, I pray that uh, when we feel in the fire, as maybe some of us do today, that we would rest, take comfort in the truth that you sit over us with loving attention and care, all the while scraping away the impurities of our character and our lives so that your face might be seen in perfect reflection. Lord, and that may not fully be realized until our final breath, Lord, but I pray that you would be working that out in us, in your people, between now and that day. Thank you for this reminder that we get to share in together as your people. In Christ's name, amen.